Hi guys, welcome to Jules and Phoebe, the weekly pop culture and social commentary podcast brought to you by yours truly, Jules and Phoebe. Hey Jules. Hey, how you doing? I am in a continuation of winter mode. I know I mentioned that last week, but like this week I've changed rooms again where we're recording, but I've got a blanket, I've got a glass of wine, I've got a hot water bottle, so... I will be playing Christmas songs shortly as well. When I'm talking to my colleagues, they're talking about doing their Christmas shopping and things like that. Mine's done. (laughs) Oh, wow. Okay. I was like, whoa, Christmas shopping in October, but okay. Oh, I love yours. I've been doing mine since probably about June because I like putting together the mental list of like what people will want. And what I hate is using November's paycheck or December's paycheck for presents I want it done by then so that like you can fully immerse yourself in so every year with my family we do secret Santa and I will send out like a link you know so it's all automated we're all abroad like we're all in different places so I send across this online link where everyone can get their names and I am always the only person who actually pulls my name out myself and obviously my husband because I make him but it will get to October, November time. And suddenly my family will be like, hey, um, can you send that link again, please? Because I need to get to work on my secret Santa. And I'm like, oh, done, bought, wrapped, completed. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, that's good. I think it's definitely good to get things out of the way. It was so funny. So today I went for my 360 health check. Oh, nice. Have you done one of those? No, Have you never. done one of those before? So I took the chance to go and do my 360. And oh, what's annoying with the 360 health check where I did mine is that they basically will do all of the mobility, your breathing, smear test if you're a female, mammogram if you're over 40 years old and you're female, et cetera, et cetera. But what I really wanted was the breathing test when you're like running on the treadmill. Oh my gosh. (laughs) (laughs) But that's part of the extra package so I didn't get the chance to like kill it on the treadmill with this like breathing mask I didn't get that yeah but like on everything else like the mobility where like you bend down you touch your toes you do some like different mobility exercises she's like yeah full marks for you and then on the breathing exercise she's like oh yeah you're top 10% for your age group That is crack to me. I'm always like, yeah, thank you. Could you just write that down on the page? Thank you very much. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So when I was doing the mobility, I have to do like a squat exercise. And then she's like, your technique is perfect. (laughs) She's like, do you squat often? I was like, oh, not really. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm going to be doing a lot more now. (laughs) So funny. She's like... Like all the BMI tests, blah, blah, blah. Oh, perfect. (laughs) I don't know if she was just being nice, but I definitely scored highly. Because when I went to the doctor afterwards, she was saying how the nurse that had seen me before was like really happy with my lifestyle. Yeah, that's what they called it. That's a good feeling. I feel like sometimes those things take a mental load off because you're like, you know what? A nurse said earlier that I had a really good squat technique. So like... Small little interactions like that will keep yeah. you going. Oh, I felt like a champion. When she told me that my breathing was top 10% for my age, I was like, it was like I won the Olympics. 
but I have asthma because I have asthma I always like am self-conscious maybe other people don't have these thoughts but when you do have asthma you do think like you're limited because you have asthma but like Mm -hmm. not really if your asthma is under control yes so I was like killing it that's so funny that you say that because I am getting an operation done next week to get my deviated septum fixed. And I can only breathe out of one side of my nose, yada, yada, yada. I've had it for years. And when I used to run a lot, it used to really bother me because a lot of the time, like you breathe through your nose when you're running. It's a more efficient way of breathing basically when you run. And so I've always had that in my back pocket of like, oh, you know, that's why I would struggle at track or something like that. There was a point at which I just plateaued. And I was saying to my husband, I'm almost nervous to get the operation done and to get the full breathing capacity of my nose. Cause I'm like, oh, what if I just plateaued anyway? My excuse is gone. <laughs> no it's so funny yeah imagine you have that procedure and then you're like oh actually this is me this is my capacity (laughs) that's the limit that is limit (laughs) that is hilarious yeah guys we're super excited today because we've got an amazing guest joining us i'm pumped i'm super excited yes you're absolutely right jules we've got a fantastic guest with us this evening we've got kachanga joining us writer aspiring novelist recently featured in the anthology loud black girls i'm so excited kachanga thank you so much for joining us can we have a round of applause I want to say how I met Kachenga. I met Kachenga like 10 years ago. And I think we met at Bootylicious. Yes. For those of us who definitely were not clubbing, were not cool, me, <laughs> what is or what was Bootylicious? Well, I knew Bootylicious as a black gay night. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's how we can describe it 10 years on, but it was basically Absolutely. like a black gay yeah, night. No, that's the, no, that's how it repped. That's how she was coming through, boo. Absolutely. It was the black gay night. It was also, yeah, just coming to the end of the age of CDs. So mm-hmm. I remember like getting like a mix at the end of the night. And mm-hmm. yeah, we had Cassie up on there. Like, do you remember when Cassie just dropped? How yes. hot it was? Okay. Literally, wow. it also had Paris Hilton on there. Oh my God, it was such a hot mix. What was it? I want to get close to me. All the boys, when they come around, they want to fight me. Yeah, defo. Paris, yeah, that was, a, that was a cute little moment. Yeah, and it was so nice for me as well because, you know, coming from my background and everything, like I'd been... What's your background? I'm half Jamaican, half Zimbabwe, and I grew up in North London. I'm somewhere between working class and lower middle class. Like my sister says that she's working class, but I say that we were lower middle. My dad was a teacher. My mum worked for the council. Grades are really important. You know, like I wasn't allowed to study anything I wanted at university. So yeah, very like reaching for the petty bourgeoisie sort of level. And unfortunately, when I came out as queer when I was 17, that resulted in homelessness and me being excommunicated from my community and everything. So finding black queer space that like welcomed me in where I could wine pun man and you know twerk on that stuff it it, it was it was it was was real it was was hot (laughs) but it's so crazy for me to hear about 
sort of coming out as queer and that resulting in homelessness for you around the age of 17? Because I would say I probably met you when you were around 22. Yes. And Kuchenga was a superstar. <laughs> Stop. I would go to Bootylicious and just gawk at the superstars and Kuchenga <laughs> was one of them. And so, <laughs> You're hilarious. Yeah, but how did you manifest all of that superstar energy given that you must have been going through so much at that time? I went to a very middle-class sixth one. I went to Camden School for Girls and I... I came out as queer and then when I went to my first homeless hostel, I met my first trans girls there and we were mired in poverty and it was super dysfunctional, but also really vibrant and really warm and we were desperate and loving and lonely and messy and all of the magazines that I'd read because yeah obviously no one reads magazines anymore but oh I still do but yeah (laughs) back then I was buying Vogue and Vibe and Glamour and more and I was just really pop culture obsessed so going into a homeless hostel and being surrounded by trans and queer youth we were able to go into the city my homeless hostel was in south kensington like bizarrely Um, (laughs) we were really close to everything and we were really close to heaven and we were really close to Vauxhall. and so even though we only had you know income support and job seekers allowance was just coming in we spent that like well (laughs) as it goes (laughs) If we couldn't afford everything, you know, we could still, you know, go around Selfridges and also like, yeah, there was Mac and Muji and whatever. So it was a really consumerist time or it was my entry into Mm. consumerism. And so we'd go out, we'd get our stuff. We were experimenting with makeup. I was able to wear eyeshadow and head wraps and crop tops and baggy jeans and yeah, just way too much mascara and eyeliner, which I'm paying the price of because I didn't remove my makeup very well. <laughs> so yeah, I wish I had. If I had the double cleansing back then, I wouldn't have these bags. But yeah, as um, it goes. So to be honest, to be young, sexy, free in London in the 2000s was a big deal. I was just so alive. It was just so vibrant. And mm-hmm. it felt really natural to just gravitate towards those who'd had a difficult time but were not just making the best of it were being really bloody glorious we were the bright young things of our era and it was wonderful I find that so funny because like just when Jules is saying like oh I saw you and you were a superstar because I've joked to Jules before that I feel like she makes a list like she finds someone in the room she's like I'm gonna be friends with you and you don't know it yet but I'm going to join your clique or you're joining mine. But like, whatever happens, this is it. And it's just yeah. it me up to think of you just being like, yeah, I was living my wild, crazy days. And Juliet's like, that girl's going to be my friend. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And that was very much my attraction to Jules too, because I have always adored bougie black girls okay like when <laughs> I when I saw the way that you were turning fashion and the hair was sleek and it was blowing blue and it was just it was just yeah it was like I just felt like an instant magnetism and I was going through a process of feminization which I wasn't necessarily really vocal about like people don't know what my plans were maybe I didn't even know what my plans were but I was 
I was on the train and stuff. So yeah. it was wonderful to be around you and to be inspired by your high femininity. So I think it, what was really nice as well was for us being where we're from, you have the pressure of being a model minority, but there's also that thing where you're kind of reduced. People see you and they want you to be one thing. Mm-hmm. And so to be like bad and bougie, like you know, <laughs> that was still, you know, that was, we were still talking. We were still having conversations. We were still campaigning. We were still fighting. <laughs> so, so um, I think like now that we've had, you know, our hashtags and our movements and carefree black girls and you know, whatever, like it feels quite fresh. But back then it was difficult to be black and complex, you know, like to mm. or just trying to be black and more than one thing, you know, because people always wanted you to serve their cultural purposes, particularly like if they want to tokenize you, you know, you can't be too much. You have to be like, you know, this distilled version of yourself in order to like serve their tokenistic purposes, which we bucked and we trend and yeah, I guess in finding community and finding each other. It was a cauldron of complexity that we really gave ourselves over to. That's so powerful for me because I think that that idea of being the model minority, and I guess perhaps everybody experiences this to varying degrees, but that's an idea that we absorb. So I always kind of like joke, so I'm Ugandan and I always kind of joke that a lot of Jamaican kids that grew up in this country or people that grew up in this country, mm. they learned what being Jamaican is from the bill or from like television, <laughs> right? So Jamaican culture in the UK basically became synonymous with Yardi culture. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. but when I went to university and I met like Jamaicans from Jamaica or people yeah. from Barbados from Barbados, mm-hmm. it kind of blew my mind because I'm like, there are way more dimensions than what we saw on the bill. Absolutely. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So when you're finding yourself, like obviously I've gone through that period of like finding myself as well. And when you talk about being black and like being bougie, mm. this was problematic. Like when I was like going through school, like I was like bullied to a certain extent. Like, oh, you think you're this, you think you're that, you think yeah. you're Oprah. I'm like, yes, I am Oprah. <laughs> yes. But I think it's obviously so much more complex when we put it against the backdrop of coming out as queer. Mm-hmm. 10 15 20 years ago and yeah, that's why you're my hero thank you and even whether I've been so close to you or like far away from you you're always someone I looked at and I'm like Kachanga's my hero to add a layer to that or you know so all the as the Americans say to add an intersection you know with us being dark-skinned too like I think being dark-skinned and bougie is a huge thing do you know what I mean because like if you're like light-skinned and you're like you think you're too nice or whatever you know that's like it's a throwaway comment But like, if you're going on bougie and you're dark skinned, there's this real evolution of like the uppity Negro sort of thing. Do you know what I mean? So it's kind of like, who does she think she is? Mm. Do you know what I mean? Like, how have we not learned that we are bottom of the barrel, unattractive, not with the right features, like not to be considered? Like, who does she think she is? Do you know what I mean? So like, people are just so angry at our confidence and I still feel it now like probably more so actually because I spend differently on my labels and stuff you know I'm wearing a bit more Aspinall than Marks and Spencer darling you know (laughs) 
<laughs> so um, yeah, like I can feel it. I can feel the rage. I can feel the resentment, and it feels very pointed because people don't feel that we deserve whatever we have. I have a question off the back of that because Jules, you you touch on everyone goes through this period of self discovery, and yes, I think that you're right in saying that. But I think obviously there are intricacies and complexities to that. What does that look like? Do you have to make a conscious decision when people are making these assumptions about you, and when your positivity? is actually in the face of such adversity. Is there Mm. a point at which you think, you know what, I'm leaning into this? Or did you not? Did you lean into it at a later stage because you actually thought, this is is horrible. Like, people's assumptions of me are Mm. actually eventually going to win out? Or was it one of those things, Juliet says on the podcast, I was born woke. But... I think that for some people, it's not easy to stay that course and actually stay true to yourself if it's everything yeah. that be. I hear that. I wish I was born white. I don't know. It took huh? so much reading for me to even <laughs> question why I was so self-loathing. And it waxes and wanes. I get a lot of sucker from the books that I read. The one that really had a massive impact on me was Rock My Soul, Black People and Self-Esteem by Bell Hooks, because that made me look at the legacy of Black social justice movements and how communities, primarily in the United States, but obviously all across the diaspora, had struggled for justice and uplift. And so I learned a few tools about mm-hmm. like being an autodidact, you know, and having to teach oneself and committing oneself to learning about yeah, yeah, yourself and your history and stuff, because it was news to me that the education had failed me. So desperately, and I guess also from an ideological framework, I read Bad Feminist by Roxane Gay in 2016, mm-hmm. I guess, which just felt like such a ticket of license. I was like, oh, great, I'm not alone. Like, literally, yes, Roxanne, I too am twerking <laughs> up the these women who are abominable like I know it's terrible and watching like all of my reality tv like I am a real housewives like I think I could do PhD level I I could I think (laughs) in the real housewives like various different cities yeah Atlanta being number one in terms of my knowledge but yeah it's as an area of study yeah, that's the team. So, yeah, being confronted with your own contradictions on a daily basis means that thinking becomes really difficult. I don't want to reveal myself to myself all the bloody time. And right. as I have manifested my glorious life as a Black trans woman, then I have to think about conformity because when I was more visibly queer and people could see my gender transgression in the way that I presented myself, like when I first met Jules, I hadn't started my medical transition yet, even though I was quay at the end of a, you know, femme, um, uh, I mean, I, I was about to say femme masculinity, but that was really not what I was giving. But anyway, the point is that as time went what was natural to me, you know, just to manifest the divine feminine in every aspect of my being, mm-hmm. that was transgressive. And mm-hmm. time's gone on. Not only have I tried to conform to a presentation of femininity that doesn't rock the boat in the sense that I'm no longer eliciting threats of 
violence on the street. You know, mm-hmm. so like if I'm presumed to be cisgender, then I will still get a huge amount of sexual harassment, a huge amount of objectification. That's not changed. That's remained most definitely a thing. But as I started to achieve mm-hmm. levels of high femininity that I thought would not be available to me, I have been fascinated in what that meant for my position in society and what that meant for me in my position within queer community because I've become a little ambivalent as time's gone on. You know, when I first got into a relationship with a white, middle-class, middle-aged male in the middle of my medical transition, I found that by passing a cisgender, that meant that I could move to Middle England quite safely. And so I called myself the transsexual princess in the tower. And what that meant was that I was able to live in the suburbs of Swindon because I just live for the glamour um, and stuff. But yeah, I was able to live in this, you know, apartment that was all cream. And I had my Asda and my Marks and Spencers and I ate the Harvester and I ate at Pizza Express for fun. And um, so... I was able to like live a really conformist life that I didn't think I ever would do because before then I'd always been just treated in such a despicable way that I didn't feel like comfortable like socializing like the average British citizen it was cut off from me. So basically you saying that pre starting your medical transition so when you were obviously male but embracing that feminine energy like when I met you was that more of a difficult time in terms of socializing it was harrowing because even though I was presenting as male it just wasn't the tea like that just wasn't what I was feeling do you know what I mean so I understand that there's this huge discord of a before and after for other people but for me it was literally just like a continued blossoming so yeah when anyone expressed surprise I was like I don't know where you've been do you know what I mean yeah, okay. I was like this is this is actually quite natural for me but because of my self-loathing and everything that I had been told about being dark-skinned and high feminine meant mm-hmm. that I never thought that a stealth trans life would be available to me Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, love is the word that we use in the trans community for when you aren't visibly or like known as trans in your everyday life. Mm-hmm. So being able to live stealth was an achievement, can't lie. Yeah, it was nice to be, you know, treated as an easy, breezy cover girl, like, you know, <laughs> walking around town. That was cute. Mm-hmm. It was also um, just difficult for me to think about in terms of just moralistically, like morally, like ethically, like what does it mean that I've left so many girls behind and that there are other, there are my peers, there are my friends who are still facing so much violence on the streets. That is not something that I'm facing in the same way. Is it like survivor's guilt? Yeah. And I think because of gender critical ideology and like, you know, just, I'm so used to having to assert my womanhood, prove my womanhood discursively that I rarely talk about how nothing's black and white or clear cut when it comes mm-hmm. to the presentation of my gender and stuff. Cause like, I feel there's a presumption that I would have been, you know, the beneficiary of all this career advancing male privilege, like before I swallowed my first estrogen pill. 
But that really wasn't the case. And particularly for me as a survivor, I had to get used to my body being sexualized and my body not feeling like it belonged to me from a really young age. And I wonder if that's also because of the intersections of race and gender, that because I was a dark-skinned, Black, queer, feminine child, Mm -hmm. that meant that my experiences were quite specific. And so they aren't really spoken about in, like, mainstream white feminist discourse but I'm happy to be a little fly in the ointment and yeah to you know be popping an asterisk on whatever conversations are being had because it's really important and there's so much room for us to relate and coagulate and just to like think really differently about how we fight for justice and equality moving forward. I'm really really Like, I'm obsessed, basically, with what you said there about the kind of before and after. It's one of those things which you've kind of said off the cuff, but as soon as you said it, I thought, God, that is actually so true. We are really defined with definitive turning points. And you know that it's true because you see it in every chick flick. Like, as soon as you said before and after, I was like, Princess Diaries. And I think, uh, please feel free to jump in and correct me if I'm wrong here, but what it sounds like is that you have reached that level of, like, quote-unquote enlightenment that so many people are seeking, where it's like, my body is not the enemy. I am with it. I am with her. Like, there are going to be peaks and troughs. You said earlier on, it waxes and it wanes, right, in the context of something else. But Mm. it feels like so many of us look for a linchpin of, like, oh, well, I'll get to this point and I'll be happy. Do you feel that you're like, oh, no, that's not it for Mm. me. I am happy. What I'm doing is separate to that. My journey is separate to seeking external happiness, basically. I mean, yes and no. I've definitely not reached enlightenment. (laughs) But I am in recovery from alcohol and drug addiction. And when I went to rehab and entered my 12-step program, you know, seeking serenity and trying to maintain sobriety by having what is ostensibly a spiritual revolution, like a revolution of the self, means that, yeah, I am always reaching for a certain level of peace with myself and peace with my mind definitely goes along with peace Mm. with my spirit, which definitely goes along with peace with my body. So, yeah, in that sense, very much so. And even though I've not read it, I have been very impacted by the revolutionary work of those who were inspired by The Body Is Not An Apology, which I've just ordered and will be at home when I return because it's coming up in too many of my podcasts and my <laughs> all the people that I try to follow. So yeah, not going to war with my body anymore was a huge part of my recovery, particularly with regard to my recovery from food addictions and things like that. Because yeah, diet culture and me being convinced that the way that I was treated in the world was because I was fat, it encouraged such dysfunctional and destructive behavior. And, you know, it would be a cycle, you know, I would lose the weight in really unhealthy ways. I would receive better treatment in certain aspects, but I was still not treated in the way that I had always wanted to be. And so that would lead to me taking more substances and treating myself in more abominable ways, which would then throw me off of my diet culture fad at the time, which then, you know, it was, it was a spiral. And eventually I saw that I was going to die when I 
finding good end to recovery, it all went hand in hand. And it also went very much in hand with how I was to treat my medical transition too. As trans women, our bodies are so maligned, very much objectified, very hypersexualized. And so not feeling like my body was my own was also exacerbated by the fact that I had to do so much to change my body, to fit mm-hmm. an ideal that was being prescribed to me. And when people find out that you're trans and they feel like they have the right to not just comment on the way that your body is, but how it should be and what it should look like. And when you're going to have such and such done and, you know, like it wasn't even me, like to be honest, I wasn't actually very clear on what my goalposts were. It was other Mm -hmm. people who told me what surgeries I needed to have and how I wouldn't be a woman until I had this and that or whatever. My life wouldn't be worth living until I had this and that or whatever and stuff. So, of course, I bought into that at certain times. When you talk about, you know, people saying that these are the surgeries that you need. Yeah. Otherwise, you're not going to be desired or you won't be as valuable or you won't yeah. pass as a woman. Yeah. As a Where does that come from? Because it basically sounds like, you know, our, our aunties when they tell us, mm. oh, you need to lose weight. Oh, you need to do that. Mm. But more from like very specific trans commentary. Yeah. So who, who are those aunties basically? <laughs> um, to be honest, I mean, from outside... The trans community, I guess, it's those who are so fascinated in the transformation and have a very strong idea of what constitutes a feminine ideal. So what you're being ushered towards is an hourglass, you know, glamazon pin-up bombshell, basically. And that's where you're going to receive the most adulation and glory, you know, you want soft features, high cheekbones, a dainty chin, a dainty nose, full hair, massive breasts, tiny waist, you know, slender curves. That sounds like Phoebe's dream body. (laughs) That's what I'm shooting for. I can reveal that I am part of MI6 and I have been reading diaries. Um, Yeah, (laughs) no, um... (laughs) I, I mean, it's something that we all live under. It's a tyranny, right? Like, you know, it's, like I was saying before, there is so much for us to relate to in terms of the pressures that we're all under. And so we have these, like, ideals of womanhood, which are historical. You know, there are Titian beauties and Rossetti paintings and, you know, pre-Raphaelites and Marilyn Monroe's and Kim Kardashian's. And, yeah, like, they, these are all like, you know, models of femininity that are used to beat us all into submission. And there's, I think it was Naomi Klein who said that, you know, diet culture encourages women to, like, focus on losing weight and, you know, being on a diet all the time. Because if you're focused on being skinny as your, you know, modus operandi and your price of being in the world, you don't have time for doing anything else. You haven't got time to revolt. You haven't got time to question, like, who's being... <laughs> than you why you're doing so much more labor than the man next to you and that sort of thing one of the reasons why we were keen to have you on is you know we really wanted to dispel the myths around you know life expectancy when it comes to trans women especially trans black women like it's so encouraging to have you on the podcast and for you to share your journey with us 
because it's an empowering journey. I feel like there are two mm. trans conversations that happen. There's one, this obsession, like you said, around transformation. Yeah. And then there's the whole like, okay, the trauma and the violence. Yeah. Right. But we wanted to take the time to celebrate you. Thank you. And talk about, you know what? You've hit 35, you're thriving, you have an exciting upcoming project. And we just wanted to show people and share with our listeners just a different narrative. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I turned 35 last month. And it's interesting getting to this milestone because, you know, when I was 27, I was very much in a ferocious active addiction to drugs and alcohol and being such an Amy Winehouse fan, I felt like I was going to go in a similar way. And so when I made it past 27, I was really surprised. And moving towards a life worth living meant, you know, just accepting that I had divine feminine energy that refused to remain contained if I was going to continue living. Sometimes I feel... People assume that there's something frivolous. When I read Janet Mock's autobiography, Redefining Realness, she states that, you know, people assume that if you, you know, celebrate your femininity, that there's something pithy and frivolity, you know, just silliness, just girly silliness. And becoming who I have always known I am and always wanted to be meant that... I just wanted to be here, you know, like that. it was literally a case of, you know, if I don't transition, I'm, I'm going to die. I just knew I was going to die. I'm, I, I can't continue living this life, living this body. I just can't do it. And so it was such an affirmation of wanting to live and wanting to be here. And I'm very glad that you brought up the life expectancy aspect because, I know why people have latched on to the story that, you know, that we have a life expectancy of 35, but we don't actually have the data to confirm that. You know, Katie Herzog wrote an article for thestranger.com, which spoke about how that has gained traction within leftist political spaces. And it's completely understandable. Like no one was doing anything evil or wrong by spouting that, but we need to have data on our life expectancy, you know, and that's really important. We are facing an epidemic, you know what I mean? It's been, even though we're in the middle of a pandemic, it has been a real rough time for the murders of trans women of colour specifically. And it tends to be those of us who were darker. It tends to be those of us who were black trans women who face the brunt of these homicides. Kijenga, I just want to, I, I guess, off the back of what you're saying there and how that trauma that you've mentioned and the narrative of that trauma is so important to offset I really want to take a second to just talk about you and your achievements and all of the the incredible work that you've done we mentioned the the anthology that you have um contributed to at the beginning of the podcast but I want to ask a little bit more about the the novel that you're working on at the moment and I wonder if you can tell us anything about that so my novel came out of a visit to Greenwich Museum. I knew that I wanted to tell the story of a black trans girl who was a sex worker, but I like in I wanted to tell it in like a different way because you know I know this the way that we're stereotyped and everything. I just wanted to tell a story that showed her interior life. 
just because I wanted to not necessarily like dispel stereotypes, but maybe expand them, like, you know, to inhabit that, you know, and instead of wanting to like race towards respectability, I thought, no, let me, let me pitch my tent here and tell her story in a way that makes people who, you know, would normally denigrate her or not feel they've got anything in relation to her, see themselves in her story and like, yeah, chime with her choices. So I went to an exhibition at the Greenwich Naval Museum, which was on Emma Hamilton, who was the mistress of Admiral Horatio Nelson. And it was just so bloody good. They just, they told the story of her life in a really fantastic way. They made her intelligent and smart and coquettish. Um, I think, yes, um, someone from the 50s in New York would say she had moxie, you know. So I was just, she really appealed to me as a person. But also that period of history, you know, we have all the slave revolts at the time. The British Empire is, you know, being fed by King Sugar and getting all of this money in and all of these West Indian planters who were getting so much money and, you know, the Bank of England swelling and ruling the waves and that sort of thing. So with Admiral Nelson's victory at the Battle of Trafalgar and, yeah, his eventual death, I was just really interested in that period of British history for creating the circumstances for the Victorian era and the expansion of the British Empire. I kind of see, like, there's a British equivalent to the Sally Hemings, Thomas Jefferson situation. I was just really wanting to explore that history because it's, it's the history that, you know, white Britain would love to ignore, deny, pretend it didn't happen. I know Jade Bentel speaks about the technology of black death and with seeing the British slave trade as the form of genocide that it was, the fact that we have survivors from that period is a result of the sexual violence in many ways, you know, and the fact that sexual violence was meted out upon like people of all genders, you know, during that. And then that made Britain rich in a way that, you know, is just astronomical to think of and stuff. So I guess, yeah, by telling that story, I think I'm trying to do my best not only to restore some honour to the lives of those who've been forgotten, who, you know, the amount of um, black seamen who were part of the British Navy over the course of centuries, you know, that's a story that deserves to be told. And also the fact that we, as, you know, being um, having a mother who was part of the Windrush generation and stuff, like, you know, the fact that we have to continue to fight for the rights of um, British citizenry is just so galling. And I wanted to do my best to, you know, just stake a claim for our personhood and humanity and write a story that makes sense for me to write, you know, that incorporates blackness and transness and feminism and all those things. That that's just where my head is at. Kachenga, we love you. Come back anytime. Yeah, of course. Follow me on Instagram at Kachenga. That's K-U-C-H-E-N-G-A. And you can also um, read all of my writing and my journalism at www.kachenga.com. Awesome. All right. Bye, guys. Y'all take care. Thanks so much for having me. (laughs) 